coming this summer to Netflix and theaters and HBO Max in select regions, basically everywhere but America. Get ready for a Zack Snyder film. Get ready for historical figures with muscles. Get ready for Zeus with muscles. Get ready for Napoleon with muscles. Get ready for Maria Antoinette with muscles. Get ready for 45 minutes of screaming in slow motion. The movie event of the summer. Get ready for a movie based on a series of obscure graphic novels. Get ready for Zack Snyder's Cartoon History of the Universe. It's gonna be the most slow motiony, muscly history of the universe you've ever seen. Zack Snyder with music by Hans Zimmer and Junkie Hanson. Ruben Uncut. I am Ruben. And today, possibly for the 4th of July, I am... No, actually, that's a lie. I'm not doing this for the 4th of July. It just happens to coincidentally line up with the 4th of July in a weird way. Although, also, not really, and only if you read too much into it. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about the Zack Snyder films... 300 and 300 rise of an empire all right first we gotta start and this is gonna be gonna have to do some a lot of explaining to lead us into this because i want to set the stage i want to give you the context because i'm not just here to talk to you about this movie i'm also here to talk to you about about art okay and comic and nerd shit all right so 300 is a film based on a graphic novel. So let's start there. So the graphic novel is by Frank Miller. Now Frank Miller is an interesting, if enigmatic and uh, infamous comic book creator legend, <clears throat> Frank Miller. And uh, I won't lie, I've enjoyed a good amount of Frank Miller's work. Frank Miller brought, uh, well, basically brought modernism to Batman in 1980-whatever with The Dark Knight Returns. It was a politically re semi-politically relevant, semi-self-aware, although also at other points maybe not as self-aware as it seems, reinterpretation of Batman kind of laying out what exactly how exactly like fucked up and toxically masculine Batman is but also kind of showing depending on how you interpret that book also kind of makes it look like that's kind of part of what makes Batman awesome which is not a great interpretation of Batman however it's worth noting that a lot of the things that the comic book series brings up, whether it's trying to glorify or satirize them, 
it's hard to tell sometimes, is uh, things that could be said to be true about Batman. Batman's pretty fucked up in the head. He's got a lot of mental illness. And uh, when you get as good at being mentally ill as Batman gets at the end of your life, you might be a crazy fascist too. But, anyways, I've talked too long about Batman The Dark Knight Returns now. But Frank Miller also may, has also written a number of other influential and, uh, well, good comic books like uh, Martha Washington and uh, fucking, uh, what was that book? Oh, shit, duh. Uh, the Sin City series of comics. But, uh, but then 9-11 happened. And, uh, the, the pretty much the consensus at this point is that after 9-11, Frank Miller absolutely lost his goddamn mind. Like, like the only thing good that can't Frank, have with Frank Miller after 9-11 is that, uh, Frank Miller... Frank Miller... Uh, Frank Miller made, uh, was involved with making the Sin City movies, and then he got to make his own movie, The Spirit, which, uh, did not do great, and, uh, got critically panned. But I tell you, I think is an underrated, dark comedy masterpiece that the world is missing out on. Now, that being said, I, uh, also see why people, uh, don't get that movie, but, uh... Frank Miller is also kind of an edge lord. It's undeniable that Frank Miller is definitely an edge lord. But uh, after 9/11, uh, Frank Miller also became a uh, horrifying Islamophobe and wrote a comic book called Holy Terror, a comic book originally based on uh, Batman that was going to be titled Batman versus Osama bin Laden until DC Comics got a good enough look at the piece and they were like. You know what? Uh, no. We absolutely fucking will not publish this. And neither will you. So Frank Miller went out and basically took that story and made, changed a few details. And by that, I mean barely disguised Batman, Catwoman, and Officer Jim Gordon. And uh, essentially, essentially just uh, changed the story enough. It's called Holy Terror. And I've seen it, and it simultaneously is one of the most beautifully drawn books I've ever read, while at the same time having the most dog shit story I've ever read. Like, I mean, I've probably read worse, and I've probably seen better, but in terms of the dynamic of how bad the writing was, in comparison to how well it was drawn, it was... Uh, a weird dichotomy, to say the least. Now, the thing is... And no, I'll get... I'll save that. Well, no, I should mention this at least. Frank Miller has a very distinctive drawing style. It is a drawing style that is meant to convey emotion, um, not necessarily realism. Because that's sort of the interesting thing, is that for all the modernism Frank Miller brought to Batman, he also brought a hefty chunk of postmodernism. Uh, because he also because his art style isn't meant to reflect the human physique so much as more of a uh, one could almost say Greek conception of it as an idealization of the human form. Although, also, at the same time, postmodern in the fact that the way he draws things is also more, more important, the emotion he's trying to convey with it. So this is a thing that is also worth noting about Frank Miller. And it's a thing that is going to come up as I proceed to talk about the films. Now, 300 is a weird one. Fr 300 is quite possibly the last really great Frank Miller comic book that I've read. Um, it's, it tells, well, the story of the Battle of Thermopylae, which is a 
historical, which is a, a famous historical battle that is chronicled in Greek history. And it tells the story essentially of that event, of how 300 Spartan soldiers went down to a place called the Hot Gates to try and block the invading, uh, the invading Persian army as they came to erase Greece from the, from the maps of history. Which, we'll get into more of that in a minute. And 300 in the comic... One of the most noteworthy things from the comic book is, for starters, the art. The art is kind of beautiful. Frank Miller's art... Um, he he consistently collaborates with a um, with a colorist named Lynn Varley, and Lynn Varley. Um, wait, what is Lynn Varley the inker? They collaborate, but they they create this art together collaboratively. I forget exactly the properties. I know he draws it. I think Lynn Varley is either the inker or the colorist. Um, but they draw it together, and the whole book is, it's a comic book that has a watercolor palette. I've been saying pastel to myself for the last few days, and now I'm realizing, while technically those color palettes are similar, this is technically watercolor. Um, and it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty book. It really is. Um, and it, it tells... Tell, like I said, it tells the story of Thermopylae. Basically, 300 guys went down. They fought another army. Over the course of the events, they all died. It's bar It's the Alamo with gay barbarians. Because that's an important... Well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a noteworthy aspect of the Spartans' history, which is that uh, the Spartans lived a borderline sexually segregated society where men had, like, their own lives and women had their own lives and they only briefly would come together. I mean, like, they would get married and they would have homes, but they would, like, barely spend time together. And they would venture, and they would essentially just come together around a certain time of the year to have children, which historical record indicates they were not good at. But um, their entire culture was based around these concepts and men would have sexual relationships with men and women would have sexual relationships with women they were outside of the marriages and um, typically would take the form of pederasty this is historical by the way but also I should note absent from the movie they um, in the in the Frank Miller seems to take Frank Miller I'm sorry, this is absent from the comic books also the comic books, Frank Miller seems to, um, Frank Miller seems to take himself very seriously. And the comic book of Frank Miller's has, um, uh, has historical citation in the back of the book, uh, to, like, all the things that, uh, that Frank Miller is citing from history. And the thing about it, and, like, the thing is, is that, like, in his comic book, he has clearly excluded um, the nature of uh, homosexuality in the Spartan culture. Um, like, Frank Miller doesn't even address in the comic book whatsoever. Uh, maybe because it, like, I don't know. I don't know if it's that he knows his market is for this story is going to be burly, like, insecure straight dudes. Or if, like, Frank Miller himself is just kind of homophobic um there's no i can't think of any strong like negativity displayed towards homosexuals in frank miller's work that i can remember um but uh if anyone can remember any feel free to uh point them out to me but uh where was i <clears throat> So, that's just a historical deviation of the story that I just wanted to point out. Partly because part of me finds it hilarious that at, some, at certain points, like, 
I would need to look into it historically. Like, there's characters that are sons. They're pointed out as being, like, the adult sons of certain other characters. And, like, I'm watching the movie, and, like, part of me's like... It's in the comic book, too. So, uh, from... Like, I would need to look into it before I could be certain. But, like, I'm watching it, and, like, a part of me is just like... You know what I bet in real life they weren't son, father and son? I bet they were lovers. I bet... <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I'm not saying that's accurate. I have not looked into it. I don't know where the first place... I mean, I guess I could Google it. It's actual, like... It's ancient Greece. Ancient Greece has got to be on the internet, right? Right? Where was I? Okay. I would like to find that out. But... <clears throat> Just a funny thought I had while I was watching the movie that <sighs> I wondered how how much of the uh, how much of that was them if any of that was accurate. <clears throat> Where was I? All right. So, anyways, it's not actually it's not a super complex story, and the graphic novel depiction is actually even simpler than the movie's depiction. Um, the thing that should be noted about uh, the movie to the comic book in terms of the adaptation is there are a number of noteworthy things in terms of the way that Zack Snyder adapts this book to the screen. <laughs> One is... Uh, that in terms of the overall story, Zack Snyder does it almost beat for beat like the comic books. The only There are only two significant, really, changes to the source material that Zack Snyder makes in terms of how the story itself is adapted. The first one being is that in the comic books, uh, Leonidas' wife doesn't do anything. Like, I think... Maybe, if I'm remembering correctly, like, they they bang, and then he leaves. It, like, her part in the comic books is negligible. But in the movie, her part has been expanded significantly into being a, a real character. The other adaptation is... Something that kind of implies that Zack Snyder might not be taking this story as seriously as Frank Miller does. But then again, like I said, Frank Miller's book has historical citation in the back of it. I don't think anyone takes Frank Miller's story as seriously as he does. Which is that Frank Miller adds a flourish into the story, which is that his version contains fantastical elements, which I will talk a little bit more about here as I go into the unique narrative of how 300 works. <clears throat> but the comic book is definitely written to be attempting to be, for something that doesn't acknowledge how gay the Spartans were, it is definitely a book that's trying to take itself seriously as a historical story. And I don't feel like this film does. Why? Because an interesting flourish added to the world, like I said, is it adds fantasy creatures. And what I mean by that is essentially the, uh, the movie has giant ogres that uh, are not in the book and uh, monsters with things like hacksaw arms. Uh, these are not... These kind of things are nowhere to be seen in Frank Miller's work. They're not big or story important, but they are an interesting dramatic flourish, which, I mean, which I'm going to go into the meaning of a little bit more. The other thing... What is easily the most noteworthy thing about 300 is the way that 300 looks. Because the way it looks is like a fucking watercolor painting. 
Like, imagine if you saw a watercolor painting with earth tones. That's what the fucking movie looks like. Zack Snyder's creative idea that won him the spot as the director on this project was he shot a test video of how he would shoot the film to show to, to, show to the, the executives at Warner Brothers. And the results are what sold it. Because what Zack Snyder does is he captures the visual imagery of the book and basically splashes them right up on the screen. Which actually makes sense because it's kind of almost exactly the same thing that Robert Rodriguez did with the Sin City movies. Where he decided to create a unique black and white visual style that made the movie look exactly like the black and white comic book. Zack Snyder takes this to a new level by making it the same color palette as the comic book. And it looks like an intensive and unique process. As the characters, if you, get, if you look closely at the characters throughout the movie, you'll see that they're wearing thick makeup to emphasize the color palette itself. And it's just, it's an incredible visual thing. The whole movie, and the movie frequently pulls into slow motion. As if you are the reader taking an extra amount of time to look at a specific battle scene of the book. It has a distinctive look that is striking visually. I, and it's, it's one of... It makes it so that the movie is more than the sum of its parts. More than just the story. It makes it so 300 is a whole fucking mood. A whole melodramatic fucking mood. Because it's meant to be. Because the most important, one of the most interesting facets of the story is that the story is being told by a Spartan soldier with one eye who is detailing the story of why the Spartans are at war. Why they're going to fight the Russians. Not the Russians, sorry. The, uh, the Persians. I may have said Prussian at some point. If I did, I was wrong. It's the Persians. But anyways, the Persians... The framing device of the story is that the story is this guy who is basically talking up the events of these soldiers who died... To convince these, to get these other soldiers fucking pumped up to go to battle. And that's the whole story. The film is often criticized for being war propaganda. And in a way, this is true because that's the literal framing device of the story. It, that is the perspective of the story being told. Which means that, as a perspectivist, I have to point out that the film is not necessarily pro the ideas it's presenting. Because this film has has an untrustworthy narrator. Someone who has a distinctive goal or self-interest in the way that they're selling the story. In a weird way, he's the only character that matters. And yet he's actually in very little of the film because he is a storyteller and he is selling this concept to people so that they're willing to go off and die. So of course it's bombastic. Of course it's pro-military. Of course it glorifies people doing violence and going to die in acts of violence. That's exactly what someone would be telling you before you were about to go off and do an act of violence. The film is often criticized for this and sometimes analyzed to present this film as being... What's the word? Um, Fascistic. Technically, it's militant. Not all military organizations are necessarily fascistic but you know 
most military-run governments are <laughs> at least a hair's width close to it. But uh, that's more indictment of the Spartans. And in fairness, Frank Miller might be a fascist. <clears throat> but uh, Zack Snyder, not necessarily. You see, the fact that there are fantasy elements, I think, speak to the fact that Zack Snyder doesn't take this seriously. He sees what the story is and understands how it's being told. Which isn't necessarily to say that this guy who grew up on very violent comic books wouldn't also find some type of fun in that. I'm not going to lie to you. The movie, I have a blast watching 300. It's a visually spectacular film. With a selling hard emotions. It doesn't necessarily have the most complex character profiles I've ever seen. But then again, it makes sense that it wouldn't, based on the type of story that it is. Once you start to understand that the film is self-recognized and self-aware propaganda, and take, you can put the film in a different light. For starters, when this guy tells the story, he's ob the, film, the film extremely subtly through visual details is telling you that his version of the story is embellished. For example, why does he why would the storyteller why was the storyteller even have a sex scene in the story? Well, it's because he needs to make Leonidas look awesome. So these soldiers will go, "Yeah, fucking Leonidas." But once again, the storyteller wasn't there for many if any of the events in the story he's telling. So he's probably making them up. He's painting, the, he's painting their enemies in an unfavorable light because he needs to convince them to kill them and see them as less human. And he's adding fantastical, horrifying elements like charging rhinoceroses and immortal ninja warriors and monsters with hacksaw arms, decapitating failed generals to basically make it, to make the Persians Wait, no, that was right, Persian. The Persians even more terrifying to these people who were, they were going to need to kill them. So in many ways, yes, these, you could see these failings in the film. But you could also see the film as a commentary on these things themselves. Frankly, I enjoy the hell out of the first movie. It is... Like I said, it's it's not a film I watch so much for the story because the story's strokes are so broad and so it's more of a mood. It's more of a thing you feel. It's a fun damn ride. And don't get me wrong, I got some fun analysis out of it. But I don't think that's necessarily the best way to watch the film. There's, don't get me wrong, like I said, I just did some analysis and said some interesting things about it. But I do think this is more something you feel. It's more a visual art piece. Because it is mesmerizing. It's some of the most beautifully filmed violence I've ever seen. And that's an incredibly weird statement. But it is. The film has a great cast, too. With Gerard Butler... Lena Headey, Rodrigo Santoro, David Wynnum, Michael Fassbender, Dominic West, Peter Minsaw. It's great people. It's a pretty, it's a pretty great cast of, with lots of sweaty, rippling dudes. The other thing here is that we're going to move into now is the sequel. The sequel is called 300. Let me make sure I've got this correct. I guess 300, Rise of an Empire, which came out in 2014. It wasn't directed by, wasn't directed by Zack Snyder this time. Instead, it was directed by Gnome Murrow, who is best known for directing films Smart People, 
Oh, and a BBC version of Watership Down. Interesting. Watership Down. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but it's fucking wild. And it's based on a screenplay by Zack Snyder and Kurt Johnstad. Now, this one I've got to pull Wikipedia up for. Because this, this is uh, an interesting turn. An interesting... Xerxes. Oh, I guess this was actually... Damn, I'm glad I looked that up before I said something stupid. Let's take a look here. Uh, Frank. Alright, anyways. Uh, I'll get into that in a minute. Let's go over what this film is about for a moment. So, the movie 300, Rise of an Empire, it, which is supposed to be based loosely on uh actually, I got to I got to see this cuz I don't I don't know if I even knew this exists. All right, sorry. I had to look something up. I uh so 300 Rise of the Empire is if I can from what I can tell loosely based on Frank Miller's um on Frank Miller's uh comic book Xerxes. Uh, th- although the thing is, is that uh, it's one of those deals where the uh, they probably differ a good bit because the movie, um, despite being an adaptation of the book, uh, the movie came out in uh, checks notes 2014, uh, which is noteworthy because the comic book uh, came out in 2018. So, I'm going to guess that they differed a bit. All right. There it is. Okay, that tells me what I needed to know. Okay, so, yes. So, basically, Frank Miller and uh, Zack Snyder started working on uh, on these movies. Well, books and movies. And essentially, from what I'm reading, Frank Miller decided that he was going to write a book that was about, essentially, uh, how Xerxes became a quote-unquote god, and how that led to the rise of Alexander the Great. And, um... Uh... Yeah. Um... So anyways... What, uh... The thing I was saying is is that uh, the book and the movie kind of, while they focus on some similar things because they're loosely based on some of the same historical events, and the film does also, from what I can tell from the pictures, seem to be trying to imitate, imitate the new color scheme of the book as being more blue, or, I'm sorry, more blue and yellow, they, uh, they must have had some level of prior communication before the films were created. But Zack Snyder is the prime. Zack Snyder and a gentleman named... A gentleman named Kurt Johnstad wrote the screenplay for 300 Rise of an Empire. Now, 300 Rise of the Empire does touch on Xerxes' journey to becoming a quote-unquote god, but, uh, it, um, how should I put this? It, uh, it's, it sort of feels like maybe Frank Miller only gave him, like, a brief outline of what Xerxes' journey was gonna be. Because while it's certainly in the movie, it's not a super big part of the movie. Because the biggest part of the movie is epic sea battles. Which I'm not going to lie to you, even though I have some serious issues with the sequel, sea battles are pretty fucking dope. Sea battles are pretty fucking dope. If you're if you're in you're into violent action, then sea battles are real fucking dope. 
but let's talk about this film. Now, the thing that is interesting about this film is that it's almost sort of kind of like an antidote to the previous film. What do I mean by that? Okay, so remember some of the things I said about the first film, about how it's got an a uh, an unreliable storyteller, and it ha- and it features fantastical embellishments and such. The second movie is not that. And you know how I said the first movie's storytelling is simple and sort of compact. The second movie is also not quite like that either. Um, don't be wrong. This is definitely still painting history with some pretty broad brushstrokes. But the film brings in a surprising amount of almost unwelcome nuance to the story. Uh, for starters, this movie contains, the st- contains exactly how the war in the previous film, which actually the stories are happening almost concurrently to each other, got started, revealing that the main character of this film is responsible for, uh, let's see what his character's name is again. I think it's Themistocles? Yes, the Themis- Themistocles. Although I think they spelled it with a K in the movie and Wikipedia has a C. Uh, Themistocles, who is a, uh, is a Navy, is basically a leader in the Navy and he commands a ship and they go to war and stuff and they fight the battles. But... Themistocles has a very different journey through the film than King Leonidas, and he has very different opinions on war. Themistocles views war as a kind of burden, not some type of joyous thing. Themistocles thinks about the pain and the toll of how he's losing good men, some of who are not natural-born soldiers. Themistocles thinks about the cost of war. And this is an interesting deviation from the first film, showing us a character who is not inundated in the same propaganda as the previous film. He hasn't been raised in the crazy Spartan culture to think that they are... to think that life is entirely about war and fighting. The other thing that it... The other thing that is strikingly different to be from the early onset is that, and this is kind of one of the things I kind of fault the movie for, is that unlike the first movie, where it's clear who's telling the story, um, here, not so much. Now, I think I figured out who the main storyteller is, and I'm pretty sure it's King Leonidas's wife which is possibly why the film is also painting a less pro-war type of message than the previous film. Because she seems pretty unhappy how the first film ends when we meet her in this film. And there's, there's honestly a lot more, like, politics in this film. Although, once again, still painted with pretty broad brushstrokes. But still, I find these sort of differences interesting in terms of the story and the way it is told. It sort of like paints an interesting picture of how the first movie works. And this is honestly, I think, the best thing about this film. And I think everything else about the film is potentially divisive. So, the number one thing that pulled me out of this movie frequently was the amount of times, and this is, a, this is possibly the strangest complaint I have ever heard, that I've ever heard myself have about a movie, which is that it knew, just throughout the movie, I would find myself watching it and suddenly going, ugh, ugh, human skin, what? Gross. Um, because in their attempt to change the color palette of the film, To match the comic book, they perhaps should have, for lack of a better term, gone harder. In the previous film, there's no point where it breaks away from looking 
like a goddamn painting. Like, that's part of what makes the film, a whole film, a fucking mood. And here, in this movie, um, well, the people who worked on this movie were clearly less dynamic, vis visually minded people than Zack Snyder. Uh, who, I can't think, there's never a wasted camera angle in the Zack Snyder film. That's just not what you're going to be seeing. And in this film, there are. Uh, but also, you see the, like, watercolor, like, earth tones thing, like, almost monochrome of the first film. It created this whole, like, world around it. And what's interesting is that when this film here goes to Sparta occasionally, the film will kind of change back to the, almost that color palette but not quite right. It was kind of annoying. But the thing also is, is that the, the blue and white and yellow thing it's trying to do here, um, well, those colors don't affect human skin the same way as the previous color palette does. And so now, through half the film, I'm just going like, but it doesn't look like a painting. Because the color palette doesn't have... Like, human skin doesn't blend in to this new color palette. Like, you see it, and it's like, well, they look human. And that's a weird complaint to have about a movie. But, like, and maybe it's because I watch them back to back. But at numerous points, I'm just, I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, ugh, they look like real people. Gross. And that's a, that's a weird thing to pull you out of a movie. Um... Don't be wrong. There are parts in the movie where I like I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, I see what they were going for. And maybe after getting over the shock of this, a rewatch would allow me to settle more into the film. But I kind of found this off-putting a bit, um, and it was my major distraction throughout the film. It just—I wish it looked more like a painting. And now, the other thing here is that the film gives a lot of uh, screen time to uh, to a, uh, let's see here, make sure I get the character right, out oh, to Eva Green's character. And Eva Green's character it plays Artemisia, who essentially is the main villain character of the film. She is a Greek who went over and betrayed the Greeks to join forces uh, with the Persians. And in the story, she's also the one that convinced um, Xerxes in the first place to give himself over to the dark gods, to give himself the power he needed to conquer the world. And she's a huge part of the film. Now, the thing that's interesting here, and almost another part of it being sort of like the antidote to the previous film is that this film is surprisingly humanizing at times of characters that previously weren't given any humanization, which is interesting. It is one of the main things that make me say that the narrative here is not as clear as the narrative of the first film, and that it has suddenly has nuance to it. How well you think that works with the story it's telling it's debatable. But Artemisia is a big character in the movie and has a number of their own action sequences and is arguably a bigger actor than than her male co-star slash antagonist character Sul Sullivan Stapleton, an Australian actor. The two of them also have a sex scene in the movie, which is kind of wild. And also, I think would look better if the color palette had worked better. Just, just saying, just saying. One of the more, one of the more, so like, one of the more surprising ones to me uh, when I was watching the film, uh, was um, a, there's a part where a character is given a humanizing backstory where I just didn't see it coming. Like, the fact that they reached back for that character specifically made me go, huh, okay, 
interesting. So it's essentially what happened is that Artemisia was essentially enslaved by some Greek tribe in in Greece, and that ended up in the bottom of a, a ship where she was held as uh, a slave by the crew until eventually she was left for dead in the gutter. And while, while she was left for dead in the gutter, her life was saved by this Persian, this, uh, this Persian, Persian member of the court, this Persian emissary played by Peter Minsa uh, from, from the previous, uh, from the 300 movie. And if you're, if you're wondering which character that is in the film, uh, Peter Mensah plays the emissary that uh, Leonidas kicks into the well at the beginning of the film. Uh, which is honestly, uh, which is just an interesting character to go back and humanize. Um, one of the other interesting details is that in, in the 300, he shows up with like a, a, a thing full of dead king's heads from like other countries that, per that Persia has uh, conquered. And uh, and essentially, in this film, we find out she's the person who killed those heads, and and that's who gave them to her. She gave him that and, and whatnot. But uh, but like it's it's interesting that the film makes an attempt to humanize uh, the Persian characters after the previous film. I find this very interesting, and I and I do think that from a from a storytelling perspective, this is worth analyzing how the films play into each other. Another noteworthy thing is that this film, um, even though it is, it is implied that Xerxes is a god, he might, he, this is, the film also establishes that this might be like a, uh, this might not be true either. That the fantasy elements might just be imagined. Because there's a part where like characters are underwater and Themistocles thinks he sees sea monsters like eating the, the drowning and the wounded and the dead out of the water. And as one of the sea monsters is coming for him, he wakes up on the, on the beach after one of the battles. And this is like the only, besides the, the thing with the magic I mentioned before, this is like the only fantasy element that's really in the film. And it's inside somebody's nightmare, which I also think is interesting. The other thing interesting is the violence in this film feels more real and gratuitous. Like, don't get me wrong, the first film is very violent and has some very graphic moments. But the way they're depicted with the art style that I mentioned before kind of takes away from the brutality of it. What? That's not right. That's actually not accurate. That's not true, actually. That's not what I'm, saying. I'm trying to say. The brutality becomes art. Like, there is an art to it. It looks like a painting of a horrible battle scene. Here, the violence kind of feels like fucking violence. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, that's a lot of human-looking blood. That doesn't look like pain at all. Uh, which ironically has an effect of making the movie look cheaper. You see, because everything looked like a painting in the previous film... You never stop to... This sort of type of detail sort of brushes over some, some of the CGI imperfections and some of the... And, and like some of the prosthetics that people are wearing to give them a more... So that they look more part of the world, making the unnatural look more natural. And in this film, natural things kind of look unnatural, which is weird. The out of place. It feels just a little bit visually broken off from the previous film. Now, I did think of an interesting interpretation of this, if it is in fact a real choice. Because the thing that could line up with the actual film is that the now subtler color palette here has to do with the humanization of the world. And the no longer seeing the world in the colors of war. Even though the film itself is still about war. Now, the comic book... Xerxes is also the story about the rise of Alexander the Great. And this film contains none of that story. However, Zack Snyder did pitch a version of that story to Warner Brothers in an, as a potential sequel. 
However, Warner Brothers said no thank you when Zack Snyder turned in what is essential what was essentially Alexander the Great, but focused on a gay romance. Which, in all honesty, I'm kind of sad we didn't get. Who knows? That could have been some really incredible filmmaking. But, you know, Warner Brothers said no to it. I, so I guess we'll never know. Alright, well, thank you for listening to Ruben Uncut. Stay safe out there. I love you. Please like, share, do whatever it is, wherever you are, listening to this to help it grow and become something. Because I can't do any of that without the support of listeners like you. That's right. I'm a PBS guilt you. All right. Also, stay tuned after for a message from one of my listeners. Uh, just going to say... Uh, the message, apparently the, the voice messages left on Anchor appear to have a one-minute limit. Um, so it did sound, dear listener, like you were going to leave a longer message and you might have been cut off in the middle. But uh, here we go. It's a message from one, of our, from one of my listeners who could be just like you. You can also leave a voice message at Anchor, where this podcast is hosted. But you can also listen to this podcast at a number of places where podcasts are available. Check your local podcast vendor. <laughs> local, like virtual spaces are local. Hi, Ruben. This is Karen. Thank you for that very thoughtful, um, uh, just a thoughtful journey through so many different thoughts and ideas. I really like the way you synthesize things from a lot of different sources and 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 your thoughts over over many years it seems like um i just i really think a lot of people could benefit from listening to your podcast um i as a you know a climate educator i'm i'm a little worried that you know something like the supreme court decision is you know, creates an immediate reaction and people want to take action right away. They, you know, it's all over social media. There's, there's no commensurate level of outrage, concern, and action over climate change. 